Support for this broadcast of Two Rivers 30 Minutes comes in part from a grant from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. From TubeCityOnline.com, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a weekly series of interviews with people making news around the McKeesport area. Produced by Tube City Community Media Incorporated, a nonprofit corporation. I'm Jason Toger, the executive director. On this show, we talk one-on-one with elected officials, community leaders, and others who are trying to make a difference in the Monoc area. And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. The steel industry in Western Pennsylvania is not what it used to be. That being said. We still do have one of the last remaining basic steel-making facilities in western Pennsylvania right here in our backyard. It's Edgar Thompson Works in Braddock and North Braddock, which produces something like five or six million tons of raw steel every year. That steel is rolled into sheets at Irvin Plant in West Mifflin, turned into pipe in McKeesport in some cases or shipped all over the country. And, of course, Clareton Works, uh, which produces metallurgical coke that's called that the byproducts are, are baked out of, which is used to fuel that Edgar Thompson blast furnace. But is it as efficient as it could be? Is it as energy clean as, as it could be? We've talked a lot on this program about the air quality in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, which is some of the worst in the country. And do these technologies that have made steel basically the same way almost since Andrew Carnegie's day – are are they outmoded and in danger of being replaced within the next 10 years or closing altogether, eliminating those good-paying steel jobs and the manufacturing industries that depend on them? On the line with us this morning is Nick Messenger. He is economist and senior researcher at the Ohio Valley Institute. He joins us uh, over the phone from Columbus, Ohio. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for, for taking some time with me, Nick. You uh, recently were co-author on a paper that's called Green Steel – in the Ohio River Valley, and you focus on Edgar Thompson works. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, kind of in your intro, that the steel industry has uh, been facing some pressure over the last several decades um, and has uh, we've seen these kinds of declines and so uh, in jobs and employment. And so there's a lot of opportunity right now. We've got federal legislation and funds available. We have a lot of discussion happening around what does decarbonization of these types of manufacturing sectors look like and how could we do that? And the technology, especially around steel making with hydrogen uh, instead of coal and coke uh, is uh, is there. And, and we're ready, I think, to start thinking about how we might invest in using it. So really happy to be able to talk about it with you. Well, one of the things that, that jumped out at me in the report is globally, the, the so-called greenhouse gas emissions, you, you estimate about 7%. I think actually the figures from the International Energy Agency, you say 7% of all global greenhouse gas emissions are from the iron and steel making around the world. Yeah, it's it's a huge uh, contributor to the greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change. Um, and we've seen a lot in the media, right, of all these countries uh, signing on to different agreements over the last decade, especially um, about reducing their their greenhouse gas emissions and, and trying to keep the warming uh, that's uh, attributable on average to climate change to uh, 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius. And so dealing with that 8% is going to be a really large challenge. And, and, and I'll tell you why. And it's because 
when we think about the emissions from things like agriculture or things like driving cars, right? Electric vehicles, you can't open a newspaper or an online. I don't know who opens newspapers anymore, but you can't open the newspaper's website anymore without seeing some sort of headline on electric vehicles, solar panels on people's homes, heat pumps, all these types of things that reduce our daily uh, kind of direct emission. But one of the things that is going to be really challenging is reducing the emissions from sectors like steel manufacturing, cement making, these types of really heavy industrial processes. Uh, anybody who has paid attention, I think, for the last 20 years knows that the rest of the world is rapidly building. We're rapidly building. Uh, when you build skyscrapers, there's not a great alternative to steel. And so you're going to have to be able to use steel in the future moving forward. Steel's not going away. The question is, how do we get rid of that 8% of, of the greenhouse gas? You, you sound a little bit like a U.S. steel ad from the 50s or 60s. Or steel makes your life better <laughs> in so many ways. We're talking with Nick Messenger from the Ohio River Valley Institute. You can get this report at their website, OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. Their office is in Johnstown, but Nick is joining us uh, from Columbus, Ohio, where he is finishing up some dissertation work at The Ohio State University. Nick, um, tell us what the Ohio River Valley Institute does. It's a relatively new organization. So the Ohio River Valley Institute, we've been around for a few years and really grew out of the need for uh, high quality research in the region, uh, thinking about the intersection of uh, climate change, local economic development, and uh, shared prosperity for workers and, and residents in the regions of uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Um, and so we do a lot of work on, on the fossil fuel industry. We do a lot of work on local economies and state policy uh, in the region. And uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, Western Pennsylvania, um, there's no bigger place, I think, culturally and, and economically where people think about steel. You know, you've got the Pittsburgh Steelers right there in the, in the heart of it. And so um, this, this really has been an issue that is directly impacted in the region that we we work with. You're not anti-steelmaking. You're not anti-manufacturing. No, we're very pro-steelmaking, very pro-manufacturing. Um, and one of the really exciting things about steelmaking in particular is that uh, the technology exists and is there to do this in a way that, that uh, significantly reduces the greenhouse gas emissions, uh, moves away from using coal in the process. And uh, our report is about how this might look and what the economic impacts might be of making a transition to using hydrogen uh, and uh, in the uh, steelmaking process as the reducing agent, which is really just a fancy way of saying uh, removing the oxygen from iron ore. Uh, and so, which is traditionally the role that coking plays in, in the steelmaking process. And, and so we have a, a gas that can do it, uh, do the same chemical reaction. Um, but one of the th things that uh, listeners are probably familiar with is when you take hydrogen and oxygen and you combine them in a ratio, one of the things you get out, the predominant thing, H2O, which is, uh, as we know, not a pollutant, not a greenhouse gas. That's actually uh, something we, we like to see, uh, water emissions. The, the report is called Green Steel in the Ohio River Valley, and you can get it at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. Nick Messenger is one of the authors, and he is our guest this morning. The, I'm going to ask you something that probably Probably 50 years ago, every school kid in, in McKeesport and Braddock and Homestead would have known about, but I'll bet a lot of our listeners don't know about right now. Walk us through a little bit of, of the current steelmaking process and, and why is it so energy intensive? Yeah. So uh, when you mine iron ore out of the ground, uh, it has this chemical formula uh, that combines iron and oxygen 
oxygen and it's it's not pure, right? You can't just take this ore out of the ground and build a building with it. It has to be uh, refined down and, and then made the iron converted into steel, which is a, a really energy intense process. And one of the things that has to happen is you have to have an immense amount of heat and, and, and energy to do it. Uh, you also have to have the proper reducing agents that remove all those impurities from iron ore. Uh, and coal has traditionally played that central role. I think you're, you mentioned you're melting, since, uh, you're, you're melting rock, essentially. You're melting rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, if you've ever tried melting rock at home, most of us probably haven't because we don't have the energy to do it. Right. Uh, It's hard to generate. You have to have these big blast furnaces to be able to to successfully do it. Um, And so right now, uh, the way that 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 supply chain works is that most of the iron ore comes from out of the region. It comes from mines, uh, a lot of it in Minnesota. Um, The coal comes from from coal mines, um, not just in Pennsylvania, but but West Virginia and other parts of the country. Um, And then essentially what happens is, is you melt it down. And, and you begin the steelmaking process in these blast furnaces. Um, that process uh, has not changed in a long, long time. <laughs> that's a, a you know industrial revolution era process. Uh, something that's really important to note, and, and we can come back and I'll, and I'll mention why this is important, is that these facilities where this this intense amount of energy is, is used. Uh, it, it is not like we are using the same exact facilities we used 100 years ago or 50 years ago. They have to be continually invested in by the steelmaking companies because they new legislation passes. So maybe they need to install new equipment and bring things up to modern code. And then the other piece is anytime you're running that much heat through a facility, you have wear and tear. And so there's going to be large investments you have to make over time to repair and upkeep and make sure that those blast furnaces uh, can still run and, and be safely run by, by steelworkers. And so... So uh, one of the things that we really try to highlight is that it's not like there's a zero dollar option of just let's keep doing things this way and a really expensive option of let's convert everything to green steel and this other hydrogen process. Uh, It's really more, hey, the next time we have to reach a decision point on do we want to keep updating these blast furnaces in this traditional process or do we want to maybe invest that capital into converting the process to uh, uh, one that uses uh, hydrogen and emits fewer pollutants. Um, so that's really what the report, the core of the report is talking about is, is kind of that decision point of, of what investments do we want to make for the future. Let's pause right there. We have a 30 second break to take. Nick Messenger is our guest. He is a researcher and economist at the Ohio River Valley Institute. You can find their website at ohioRiverValleyInstitute.org. The report is called Green Steel in the Ohio River Valley and it focuses on the Mon Valley Works in uh, Braddock, Clareton and West Mifflin. When we come back Nick, I want to ask you, what are the consequences? You said there is no zero-dollar option. I want to ask you, what are the consequences if we don't uh, make this investment or if private industry and the public do not make this investment within the next 10 years? What are the consequences? And then I want to ask you more about the mechanics of this conversion to renewables and fossil-free fuels, okay? Okay, that sounds great. Broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Support for this broadcast comes from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. Since 1866, Striffler's has provided compassionate professional memorial services for families in White Oak, McKeesport, Dravosburg, Portview, and the surrounding areas. Striffler's offers comprehensive pre-planning services and aftercare. And through its affiliated company, Design Monuments, Striffler's also provides permanent 
markers, and memorials crafted in stone, bronze, and other high-quality materials. Learn more at strifflers.com or call 412-678-6191. Nick, um, before we took the break, you mentioned that there is no $0 option, that that basic steelmaking facilities, and again, 50 years ago, probably any school kid in the McKeesport area or Braddock area knew this. Every so often, furnaces need to be relined, uh, processes need to be updated. There is a wear and tear on steelmaking facilities. If U.S. Steel decides not to invest, what happens by 2031, according to your report? Well, so one of the things that uh, steel has faced, steelmaking has faced in the last several decades are rising pressures from competition. So, you know, you mentioned 50 years ago, uh, globalization was not a word that we were we were talking about in, in the same way that we're talking about it today. And so you have uh, competition really coming from two places you know, to Western Pennsylvania, steel mills and steel workers. One is from overseas. That's the one people think about the most. That's uh, companies chasing uh, lower wages and and lower, uh, less regulation overseas to maybe uh, manufacture steel and then import it back. Uh, the second piece is uh, competition from other states. You know, we've seen this a lot uh, of different states putting together these really massive tax incentive packages, which, you know, I could talk about the the kind of pitfalls of these types of tax incentive, uh, I, like lures, right? Trying to cast a lure out into the stream and lure a, a big company to your state. Um, but we've seen uh, steelmakers um, take take the tax incentives to manufacture facilities in Arkansas and, and West Virginia. And these are also states that have different labor regulations and, and maybe are less labor friendly than Pennsylvania is. And so um, there's there's some competition from other states. And then one of the reasons we highlight in the report is maybe the, the biggest one over the last five decades is we are making more steel than ever with fewer workers than right. ever. And that's largely a, an automation and technological improvement uh, result. So as we do these updates you know, to, to facilities and we bring in new equipment and technological breakthroughs happen, you actually can automate more and more of the process. So what does that really mean? Well, in, in Allegheny County and, and the kind of uh, – Four of it, we we find that over, you know, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data uh, in iron and steel mills, it's been about a 30% decline in in the workforce uh, over the last 10 years between 2011 and 2021. And so uh, I, I always say that, that it's a 10-year trend we highlight in the report, but it's really a 50-year trend. Yeah. If you went back at any point in time in the last 50 years and you, you uh, I'm, I'm not a person who likes to gamble, but if you wanted to put money on it and say, I think next year we're going to employ more steel workers, uh, you would lose that bet very frequently. You know, most of the time it's a losing bet um, because of these outside forces. One, one, so, one, one figure one, I like to, if I can interrupt for a second, one figure I like to point out to people is that Edgar Thompson plant in, in Braddock is producing about the same amount of steel today that it produced in 1980, but with about 10 percent of the workers. Yep. Yep. And and I don't think people realize that, that the steel industry has kind of been facing these pressures for a long time. Uh, and so one of the things we really highlight is that it's you can't compare making the investment in uh, green steelmaking to what the picture looks like today in 2023. You actually have to think about, well, these outside forces are going to continue to act on the steel industry. You're go- going to get more states putting up packages to try to lure steelmakers to their state. You're going to get other countries who are going to try to manufacture steel domestically and, and lure steel manufacturing to their to their country or start their own steel manufacturing industries. Uh, and you're going to continue to get automation and technological change and artificial intelligence and all of these other factors that, you know, how does that impact the steel industry? 
So what we do is we actually try to compare apples to apples. We say, well, it's going to take some time to make these investments in green steel and and the renewable energy and the uh, hydrogen production and all these pieces in the chain. But let's say that takes 10 years to get online. What does the steel industry look like in 10 years if we just keep operating under business as usual? And yeah. and what we project out is that we're going to continue to see those declines. And so really the, the comparison that's important to make is what might the economic impact of the steel industry be in 10 years if we make green steel investments and renewable investments? And what might the economic impact of the steel industry be if we allow these uh, outside forces to continue to kind of uh, reduce the number of workers in traditional steel. We're talking this morning with Nick Messenger from the Ohio River Valley Institute. He's joining us on the line from Columbus, Ohio. The new report which came out uh, in April is called Green Steel in the Ohio River Valley. The subtitle, The Timing is Right for a Rebirth of the Clean Green Steel Industry, and it focuses on the Mon Valley Works, the U.S. steel facilities uh, in our area in Braddock, Clareton, and West Mifflin. Let me throw some, some cold water on this, though, uh, Nick, because you've alluded to the fact that uh, U.S. Steel in 2017 or 18, something like that, announced a $1.3 billion investment in the Mon Valley Works that, that in part was going to transition to renewable energy and was going to recapture uh, some of the, the, the waste gases and, and, and recycle them. I think a co-generation electricity generating plant also was planned. They scrapped that idea and instead they bought a company called Big River Steel as you mentioned, in, in, in Arkansas. So what, what compelling reason is there for U.S. Steel, which has already voted with its money, with its dollars, to, to invest in buying a steel mill someplace else? What, what's, what's the compelling argument for them to invest in these existing facilities in western Pennsylvania? Yeah, well, I think that's a really important question. And uh, going back and thinking about how the landscape has changed since 2018, uh, especially at the federal level, the biggest single reason that this is important right now to talk about is the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, last summer. And the Inflation Reduction Act, um, even though the name uh, and, and fighting inflation is important, it actually was a very large climate package um, and, and green energy package aimed at a lot of uh, transformation across the U.S. economy in terms of how we think about greenhouse gas emissions. And there is a lot of federal money on, on the table right now for communities across the country who are looking to make, and industries across the country, who are looking to make these types of uh, investments in decarbonization. And so while it's important to think about that, you know, in 2018, the, the calculus was probably a little bit different in terms of chasing uh, lower wages and cost savings. Now the calculus for the, these companies, and we've seen it with, with uh, Cleveland Cliffs has announced that they're kind of pursuing some of this decarbonized hydrogen-based steelmaking through the IRA, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act funds. Um, now the calculus is, is changed because there's there's new money on the table from the federal government, a substantial amount of it. And uh, there's also some different tax treatment that, that's in the works. Um, so one of the things that that is really important is that the green steel pathway kind of works, I like to say, in three steps. Step one, uh, you have to make electricity. Step two, you have to use the electricity to make hydrogen. The way you typically do that is you run the electricity through water and you split water apart into hydrogen and oxygen and you capture that hydrogen. Uh, and then hydrogen, very energetic gas, you use the hydrogen in the steelmaking process to reduce that that iron ore rock uh, into iron and use it in the steelmaking process. Um, and so you need a large amount of electricity and renewable energy is, is what we kind of model out what that would look like for the region uh, to make the investment. So it's important to note that this pathway uh, that we're, we're kind of uh, researching is 
based uh, on not only converting the steel making process to hydrogen based um, and and a green steel process, but it also includes the construction of hydrogen production facilities, which there's a lot in the news about incentives and packages from the and funds from the federal government that could subsidize hydrogen production. And then it also relies on a large construction build out of renewable energy, wind and solar in the region. Let's... And there's a lot of funding for that. In the, in the IRA as well. Let, let's take our, our second break right there. When we come back, one of the points that you make in this report that I think is going to be very interesting to people is why not go to – you're in Columbus, Ohio. Why not do this in Columbus, Ohio? But your report makes the, the point that Pittsburgh is very well – because of the supply chain and because of the history, Pittsburgh is very well positioned to capitalize on green steel making, that the, 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 the infrastructure is here already, okay? So if we can explore that after the break. Sounds great. We're talking with Nick Messenger. He's an economist and senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute. The new report is called Green Steel in the Ohio River Valley. The timing is right for a rebirth of a clean, clean green steel industry and we focuses on the Mon Valley Works. That's what we're talking about this morning. Broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown on McKeesport. This is Two Rivers 30 Minutes, and we'll be back to wrap things up. We're Mon Valley proud, Tube City Online Radio. We, we've had some doom and gloom here in this half hour, but one of the points that, that you make very strongly that you and your co-authors in this paper is that Pittsburgh is well-positioned to take advantage of green steel making technology. Why is that? What are the infrastructure, the supply chains that are in place that, that make Pittsburgh well positioned for this? Yeah. So I think anytime we're talking about an industry that that is highly specialized, you mentioned uh, well-paying steel, good-paying steel jobs, manufacturing jobs that are in the region right now, uh, there's a significant amount of skill and human capital, right? The the experience that the folks in the industry have. And so, you know, you can't, it, it is not uh, economically efficient to just pick up an industry and plop it down somewhere else and assume that the folks who live in that part of the country would have this accumulated decades of steel making experience and industry experience. So, so I think the people uh, of the region are are kind of point number one in why you make this kind of investment already in the heart of steelmaking country uh, in the Mon Valley region. The second re- point you made uh, that I think is absolutely right is that you already have an industrial supply chain. This doesn't change the back end. This doesn't change shipping steel out. This doesn't change uh, suppliers that you're you're contracting with for um, iron ore. This doesn't change deliveries of iron ore. Um, so all of that infrastructure already exists in the Mon Valley and, and at these facilities. And so what we're really talking about is actually just changing the internal process, right? If you, if you picture steel making as a big box, there's arrows going in and arrows coming out uh, and the steel making happens in the box. We're not talking about changing either of the arrows. We're just yeah. talking about changing what happens inside that that magic steel making box, the process that the actual production uses. You, you, you um, also so mentioned that, that the, the most common way to make hydrogen is from water. And what do we have a lot of in, in Western Pennsylvania? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got the Great Lakes, and and I think anywhere else in the world is is you know would be happy to have that water supply and the the water source that we have here between the Great Lakes, between the river, the Ohio River, um, between all of the fresh water sources we have uh, access to uh, across the Midwest and in Western Pennsylvania. So I think those are also uh, huge strengths for the region. Um, you know, we we go back and, and have a long history um, in, in manufacturing. We've got the railways and tracks are laid for for delivery and shipments of these. We've got uh, 
another aspect of the waterways is any kind of water shipment, right? We we know that uh, a lot of the iron ore comes from Minnesota and actually comes down across and shipped across the Great Lakes uh, to get into the region. And so um, there's a lot of strengths that the region has. And what we kind of show and model out is is uh, not to get too far into the weeds, but we we model out a two million ton facility and try to compare kind of apples to apples under the traditional and the green pathway. And uh, like I mentioned, the trend for the last ten years, if you project it forward ten more years, you're talking about maybe losing another eight hundred jobs in the region between both the steel making jobs. And it's important to remember every every steel worker who yeah. earns a, a solid income spends that money in the local economy. They right. go to restaurants, they go to grocery stores that supports other jobs. Uh, so we're talking about maybe losing 800-ish more jobs in the region if, if we keep under business as usual and these outside pressures keep up. Uh, we keep seeing more deals, right? If we, if we keep sending things to Arkansas, we're going to continue to lose jobs in the region. But when you start actually adding not just the steel making, but the renewable energy production, solar and wind, and the hydrogen production, that actually nets new jobs for the region. So not only does it save those 800 jobs, but it adds about 1,100 jobs um, assuming a two million ton, yeah. you know, per year for. Let me let me so interrupt we, you just to try to. We are running short on time, but let me interrupt you because there's another surprising point you make in here. Everybody knows it rains a lot in western Pennsylvania and in this part of Appalachia. We have a lot of cloudy days, but you make the point that actually solar and wind power could play a bigger part of this than maybe most people expect. So we, we, we could take advantage of the sunny days that we do have and, and the wind that we do have. Yeah, I think uh, so when we model this out, we actually use the, the capacity factor. So we're not just saying, oh, you know, solar panels, we assume it's going to be really, really great. We actually use the actual weather and, and climate data from the, the state. There's a, a great modeling uh, tool that uh, actually uses Pennsylvania's uh, and specifically, you know, thinking about Western Pennsylvania. So we're not trying to say this is up high in the sky, you know, hopefully there's enough wind and hopefully there's enough sunshine. We know that there is if we build out this capacity. I think that's one of the challenges to think about is that it, it will take a large build out of the region's renewable capacity. But if you look at the direction uh, that, that the world is moving and that uh, the government is, is pushing industries to move towards, there's a, a significant opportunity here to be what we would call in economics a first mover. And so if you are the region that installs the capacity uh, in wind and solar to generate clean electricity and, and get those tax credits along the way, uh, I'll add, in the next five or 10 or 15 years, as other industries, not just steel, start thinking about, we are facing pressure to decarbonize. Where can we build our next factory? Where can we build our next facility that has an, an abundance of clean energy, that has water, that has these resources? If Western Pennsylvania has already done it to, to bring about green steelmaking, it's going to become a hub, we argue, for decarbonized manufacturing, um, where you start to see these returns on investment. And, and if Western Pennsylvania is the first place in the country or one of the first places to make these large investments over the next several decades, instead of that kind of declining trend we've seen for 50 years, uh, there's a real opportunity here to, to reverse that and actually be a growing trend as decarbonization continues to accelerate. So what's our leverage? I mean, we're talking about private companies. U.S. Steel is a private for-profit company, Allegheny. Any technologies, new core, Cleveland Cliffs, uh, you mentioned. These, these companies are all, you know, they're in it for the profit. What leverage do we as residents or as our elected officials have on these companies to encourage this kind of investment? 
I think the first the first and, and largest source of leverage has been that we've seen the federal government and the EPA in particular change and, and update rules around uh, pollutants that are coming out of, of, of facilities like this that are doing large scale industrial manufacturing. And that's going to play a huge role. Uh, if you talk to folks who who work in, in the sector and, and think about coal and, and its greenhouse gas emissions, uh, I think folks will quietly kind of acknowledge that under the, the new guidelines, it's going to be exceedingly expensive to continue to release greenhouse gas and, and pollution in the atmosphere. And so I think a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of uh, manufacturers are going to face the, the reality of the cost benefit analysis regardless in the next decade uh, as they think about, well, do we sink the money into updating these kind of traditional methods to meet new pollution regulations? Or is there a more cost effective investment we can make now with capital? on the front end that we can get subsidized for or we can get funds from the federal government to help do that's going to save us on the back end, that we don't have to try to retrofit facilities and we don't have to try to meet ever uh, increasingly strict uh, climate regulations or pollution regulations. Um, and, and I'll just note that as residents, uh, one of the reasons this this becomes exceedingly important is uh, if you take the, the current uh, federal government's social cost of carbon, which tries to capture all of the uh, societal costs uh, of pollution of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. Uh, we estimate that that reducing that pollution from from the steel facility could save residents, uh, you know, an estimated three hundred and forty million dollars on healthcare costs, on environmental costs, uh, and on quality of life costs. And so, um, it's kind of the the pressure for or the reason residents may want to continue to uh, support public policy that that puts pressure on on this kind of transition is not only is it a, a transition that's a, a good bet on a future trend, but it and and creating good jobs in the region and, and growing the economy. It's also a, a policy and an investment that improves the uh, the air quality, the health, and the uh, region's environment overall. Uh, we have been talking this morning to Nick Messenger. He is an economist and senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute. You can find the new study, Green Steel in the Ohio River Valley. The timing is right for a rebirth of a clean green steel industry on their website. Nick, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us about this. It's fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much and, and thanks for your interest. And thank you all for listening this morning to Two Rivers 30 Minutes broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. So long for now. You've been listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, copyright Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Opinions expressed on this program are not those of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Listener support makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our website at tubecityonline.com and click on the donate link. You can also get a free subscription to this program and other podcasts at our website using Apple's iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you've got a question or comment, we hope you'll write to us. Our address is Tube City Community Media Incorporated, P.O. Box 94, McKeesport, PA, 15134. You can email us at tubecitytiger at gmail.com or call us at area code 412-614-9659. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online.